and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm reporting from sunny and warm Denver, Colorado. I've got my partner up in Chicago, Larry Mishkin. How you doing, Larry? Tim, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Always great to hear from you. Uh, sitting here in lovely Northbrook, Illinois, where it's a little overcast. And it's been cool, actually, here the last couple of days. It got chilly last night. We had to put a sweater on when we sat outside on the porch. So it was kind of nice, actually. Um, keep the air conditioning off for a few days. Uh, but it's we're gonna we're gonna get uh, stuck with it again this weekend. So we're we're enjoying it while we can. Um, we're gonna dive right into it today, Jim, because I know you've got a tight schedule, as does our guest. Um, and for me, at least personally, our guest today is somebody who I just could not be more excited to have on our show. Terry Laban uh, is a guy who I went to the University of Michigan with too many years ago to count, and uh, we ran in the same crowd, always just kind of on the outskirts of each other in the crowd, but. Uh, I knew that Terry was a, uh, a fan of a lot of the things that I was, including the Grateful Dead and uh, cannabis. And uh, whereas my journalism career took me to the sports pages, Terry was doing a lot of cartooning and uh, drafting and working for the Campus Humor magazine and, and all sorts of fun stuff where he could uh, uh, exhibit his skills and talents. Um, after we graduated from college, uh, Terry kind of morphed into a uh, – full-time cartoonist, which he can tell us a little bit more about, and hopefully he will tell us about his days uh, doing more some work for Grateful Dead comics uh, and stories that I think involved uh, some of the same guys I used to hang out with. Um, uh, as life would have it, Terry and I wound up living about uh, two blocks away from each other in Chicago uh, in the 1990s, and we each have a son who were the same age, and we're going to school together for a while, so it gave us a chance to really reconnect and spend some more time together. Uh, and then Terry often went to Philadelphia. So uh, that's where he'll be, I assume, talking from us today. Uh, he's had a very successful career as a cartoonist, including uh, his daily cartoon strip, Edge City, which I think just recently stopped running. Um, Terry, w welcome to the show. Great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Nice to see you again. It's been a while. <laughs> it has been a while, but you know that these these are the kind of things that bring people back together. So it's uh, I live long great. enough to see it. So that's a good thing. Well, that's that's exactly what Jim and I say all the time. You know that who knew uh, <laughs> thirty years ago that we'd have a podcast sitting around talking about marijuana and the Grateful Dead, and people would be interested in listening. But but here we are. Um, so boy, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, well. Uh, what do you want to hear about first? <laughs> let's, let's talk about cartooning. You know, I mean, while everybody's yeah. off in college, kind of going off in serious directions, sure. you're trying. Yeah, you know, uh, I was kind of fortunate early on. I always, I mean, I wanted to be a cartoonist from about the age of six, and I couldn't really imagine doing anything else. And uh, I went to art school at the University of Michigan, and uh, they didn't have cartooning there, so I studied graphic design. But I did a lot of work, as you said for the College Humor magazine, and, and that kind of got my feet wet. But after college, I traveled for a while, and I came back to Ann Arbor, and I was just really fortunate. Uh, I wandered into the local paper right after I moved back, 
because I'd grown up pretty close to there in Detroit. And uh, so that wasn't a far way for me to go. And uh, I was showing them some illustration work, trying to get some freelance stuff. And they said, oh, well, we buy local political cartoons and we'll pay you 40 bucks a pop or whatever. So I ran home and I drew some stuff up, read the paper, saw what was going on, drew some stuff up and they bought them. Before long, I was actually able to make a living doing that uh, and other other kinds of cartoon type things. So uh, I really didn't have to have another job uh, in my life, and that was just that was really fortunate uh, for me in a way. I guess I mean I wasn't I wasn't making a lot of money, but I could live. And if you're ever able to make a living doing what you want to do, then you're you're never going to want to do anything else. And that's kind of how it it, it it happened. So, uh, but shortly after that, uh, I got involved. I, I really wanted to do comics, so I got involved in the uh, underground, or well, they weren't underground, the alternative cartoonist scene that was really kind of taking off back then. It was really based in Seattle uh, around a company called Fanagraphics, and I ended up creating a couple series for the for Fanagraphics books, uh, Unsupervised Existence and Crud, and. Uh, through that, I got involved in the comics industry, did a lot of writing for DC Comics, did another series uh, called Cud Comics for another company called Dark Horse Comics. And uh, so that was my life for about 10 or 15 years uh, before I started to do the comic strip. Um, that was a really, that was a pretty exciting time. Uh, I really, I wanted to be an underground cartoonist. That was really my inspiration, but there weren't underground cartoonists uh, by the time I got to it. So it was, it was this whole new thing. And that, that led me uh, in some, some interesting and unexpected directions. But uh, during that time, uh, in the mid-1990s, I got to know Dennis Kitchen, who's the publisher of a company called Kitchen Sink Comics, which was a pretty well-known underground outfit. Uh, it was a little bit of a latecomer to the underground scene. Started in, the I think, the, late, the early 70s to mid-70s. Uh, published a lot of the well-known sort of second-string uh people and also some anthologies like Death Rattle and uh, stuff that really you'd have to be a, a pretty underground comics geek to know about it. But it was a, it was a pretty big company. And uh, I heard somehow, so I got to know him. I actually went up to his place in Wisconsin at one point with a bunch of other cartoonists. That was really interesting and fun. But uh, I heard sometime, uh, it must have been around like 1992, 1993, that he had a deal to do Grateful Dead comics. And I, I really liked the Grateful Dead. and I, I had no idea what this thing was. But I saw him at a convention around that time, and I went up to him and I said, Hey, Dennis, I heard you're doing Grateful Dead comics. I, I really like the Grateful Dead, and I'd love to do some comics about going to the Grateful Dead. And he was receptive to the idea, and he checked with his people or whoever, and they approved it. And uh, I ended up doing probably four or five of them for the various issues. But the funny thing was that it turned out that the comic series was actually – I was the only one that was doing stuff like that. The comic series was actually pretty much – people illustrating Grable Dead song lyrics. So I was the only one doing these kind of stories about going to concerts, um, which was which was really, uh, it was kind of interesting for me and it was a really cool gig. Um, and from time to time I will meet people who say, you know, they saw my work in Grateful Dead comics. <laughs> so that's my, that was my only, that's my, uh, that's my uh, touch of sort of, being involved, actually involved with the Grateful Dead. And I was in the first issue too. So when they did a collection, my very first story was in there. Um, and uh, so that's how that happened. And, you know, it was fun because I, I could put, you know, I, I put people that we both know in the comics because um, they were based on uh, going to concerts with those people. Although most mm. of the stories after the first one were pretty much fictional. <laughs> 
Did, uh, <laughs> how long did Grateful Dead comics run? Uh, it probably wasn't more than a couple of years. I don't think it went more than five or six issues. Uh, was yeah. it officially authorized by the band? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, it was authorized by the band. It was a deal with the Grateful Dead, and uh, Jerry Garcia wrote the introduction. Or man, I think there may have been a couple introductions, but Jerry Garcia wrote the introduction to the uh, collection, the one mm -hmm. collection they put out, which was well, he was. Oh, yeah, Jerry was always sketching. Yeah, yeah, I know he was. He was a he was a, a visual artist, and apparently, I mean, according to him in the introduction, he also really liked comics. And I mean, yep. underground comics were a huge part of his scene, so you know that's not a surprising thing. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, and, and I think that also kind of ties in nicely with the show, certainly in a lot of the comics that I've read that you've drawn, but that other people of the underground comic scene that I'm familiar with, Fat Freddy and the Fabulous Free Freak Brothers and all of them, uh, marijuana always played a central role in those in those cartoons. Was that because they were designed to be counterculture and that was just kind of a counterculture thing, or was it just you know creating the characters that way? Well, I mean, it was. I think it was both things, and plus, they were designed to be red stone. I mean, well, that was that was. It was entertainment for high people. I mean, that was that was part of the point. So, you had well, a lot I, of weird stuff that doesn't. I mean, it really doesn't make sense today, but I guess it did back then, and it did to us. I mean, I really I encountered that stuff really as a college student in the early 1980s. So it was the scene was gone, but. You know, we were still reading it, th those things, and, uh, you know, it, it, we were still getting it. But, I mean, it was both things, right? I mean, the Freak Brothers was meant to satirize, you know, it was like a, a hippie version of the Three Stooges. I mean, that was its intent. So it was both talking about stuff that everybody was thinking about at the time, which was dope. I mean, people in the 60s basically thought about dope and being against the war and radical politics, you know not necessarily at the same time, but, but <laughs> and music and, you know, that's what that was the, and sex. And that was the main subject matter of, of underground comics. And, and of course, acid was a huge thing as well in the mix. Um, uh, Jim, uh, one of Terry's collections is a, a, a comic strip called Eno and Plum, uh, which he was kind enough to give me a copy of when he was still in Chicago. And, Tying into what he just said, one of the, the classic all-time lines by all-time lines by an author writing an introduction to his book is after giving this whole description of who the main characters are and what they're all about and everything else. The very end, it says, and I'm not going to quote it correctly, but something along the lines of, "Yeah, and one other thing, you know, it helps a lot if you're stoned and sitting in a barber's chair." <laughs> and so I, I always loved that line. The, the getting stoned part was easy, but I could never find the barber's chair, so I'm, I'm still searching. Well, you know, you know, well, the thing about it was, you know, why I wrote that the context is that when I was a kid, I would go to the barber's shop, and the barber had a lot of comics at my barber's shop. And he had he had good comics. I mean, and I'm not like a superhero guy, which is why I eventually had to leave the comic book industry. But like he had a lot of Donald Ducks, you know, Carl uh, uh, Barks Donald Ducks, which are the classic Donald Ducks. So uh, I used to sit in the barber chair while my hair was getting cut and read Donald Duck comics. Um, it was an immensely pleasurable experience. And I actually spent ended up spending 14 years writing Donald Duck comics for the company that was publishing them, Egmont, which is a, a big Danish company. So that was kind of a weird thing, but. Uh, when I did, you know, in Plum, it was it was it was kind of, uh, in a way, I, I was thinking of what, what would you want to read, 
in the like stoner barber chair, I guess. Sure. I mean, they weren't, oh, you know, it right. wasn't really about hippie culture. It was more about Generation X stuff, but they had a lot right. of culture, hippie culture woven in. Right, absolutely. So absolutely. what are you doing today, Terry? Well, uh, my con I did a syndicated comic strip called Edge City, as Larry says, for 15 years. Uh, and that ended in 2015. So since then, I've gotten into this thing called graphic recording. Uh, I go to meetings and events and workshops and seminars. And I take visual notes using markers on large format paper or board as the event happens. So I'm kind of like a living whiteboard video. Did you ever see you know, those videos where the hand draws things out as somebody's talking? I, I do that in real life in, in, in an improv, improvisatory manner, right? So at the end you have this piece. So it's actually a business. Like there's, there's people that do this and it, they pay like big money. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, as you may expect, you know, the, I was devastated by the coronavirus thing because people are no longer gathering in conferences and seminars. So that was really a drag. Uh, and you can see my stuff at www.breakthroughvisuals.com. Excellent. Well, that was going to be our next question. <laughs> no, no. And we would have. Absolutely. That's part of our show. We want to make sure that people can get in touch with you and, Really quickly here, just while we have you, to be able to segue into uh, the marijuana side of things for a minute. You grew up in Pittsburgh, as I recall. No, I grew up in the suburban Detroit. Oh, suburban Detroit. My bad. Okay, yeah. well, there My you go. My mom's from Pittsburgh. Okay, well, maybe that's what I was thinking about. So suburban Detroit, and, you know, while you were growing up in suburban Detroit in the late 70s, you know, early 80s, uh, you know, at least in your high school and your community, was marijuana a big thing? Uh, was for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, marijuana was a big thing. And I mean, anybody who went to school in the late 70s, you know, I read a statistic like 12% of kids in the in 1978 were daily marijuana users. Um, I was among those people. Um, and uh, yeah, there was a big marijuana culture in my school. And you know, that was a time, you know, this was before the war of dr on drugs. And that was a time when you could go to any suburban strip mall and find a head shop. I mean, you could, there was a, there was a kiosk at our local mall that sold bombs. And, you know, it was really very out in the open compared to what you would have seen five years later. And, and I, and I felt bad for my parents because you know, they, they didn't like it at all, as you might expect. And you know, they sure. were surrounded by this culture of, you know, everybody you know, smoking dope is cool. Um, yeah, I, 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 and, uh, you know, and I really wanted to be like at a certain point in my life, I really, I really wanted to hang out with the burnouts. I wasn't a burnout, you know, uh, they were like kids that were in trouble and I wasn't so much in trouble, although marijuana got me in a little bit of trouble, but you know, I was really attracted to that sort of, I, I didn't like my school, like a lot of people. And I was really attracted to that scene, but I mean, I have to say that, um, marijuana, you know, really kind of saved my life in a certain kind of way. And I'm really grateful to it because, I, you know, I had mild OCD growing up. And uh, when I started smoking pot, it like it cured it, basically. And a lot of the really compulsive behaviors I had, I stopped doing. And, um, you know, I'm still OCD, but it comes out in a different way. And um, so even though I, I, even though I would say, you know, and plus I, you know, my, like, my parents didn't like music. I discovered music through pot. Um, you know, the world kind of really, marijuana really opened the world up to me. And, you know, it's, I mean, I'm <laughs> profoundly grateful to it. 
Um, <clears throat> Terry, so. when did you uh, start going to Grateful Dead shows? My first Grateful Dead show is uh, in Ann Arbor in 1979. And, you know, in Detroit, oh. growing up in, in suburban Detroit, we didn't listen to the Grateful Dead. Like, it wasn't part of our thing, our Detroit youth culture at all. Like, you know, people listen to Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, all those 60s bands, Rainbow Band was kind of big when I was growing up. Uh, you know, th that kind of thing. Ted Nugent was huge in Detroit. Uh, you know, and... I was really interested in 60s culture, so I would read about, you know, these. I was really interested, inter interested in psychedelic music, like what is it, you know, and why do you hear these bands? And at that time, it was very difficult to hear them because they weren't largely playing the stuff on the radio. You had to be a record collector, and you couldn't go, go on the internet and find this stuff. So I read about the Grateful Dead, like the quintessential acid rock band, right? Like, who are these people? All they would play on the radio is trucking and sometimes Casey Jones, and I was like, okay, but that can't be the whole story. And I, remember, and I went out and I bought their best of, you know, the best of the Grateful Dead on cassette. And I played it and it was like folk songs or something. It was like, you know, Mexicali blues, like the studio version. And I was like, this is acid rock. I mean, I thought it was gonna be like Jimi Hendrix, you know, like a 20 minute Jimi Hendrix jam. Like what, like, what is this stuff? Like, this, this does not sound psychedelic to me. So, it took me like when I got to college, I met people who were who kind of introduced me to the Grateful Dead, and I started, you know, and I took more esoteric drugs and started listening to that music. And you know, I remember listening to Anthem of the Sun for the first time, and I was just like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> now I get it. And Live Dead, I was like, oh yeah, all right, yeah, awesome. And uh, and I don't remember if I heard those things first before I went to the concert, but I remember. Uh, you know, I went with Jimmy, and I went with Jimmy Marks, our mutual friend. And it's the Grateful Dead's coming to Ann Arbor in the fall of 1979. I was like, oh, let's check it out. So I went I went with those guys, Steve Stupan, I went with them. All those guys, we went to this concert. And, you know, uh, I was on some substances, and wow. You know, like, it was just like, oh, my God. Like, I, I, you, know, you know, I realized, like, A, like, okay, this is, like, what psychedelic music is. And B, like, I really like to dance for, like, five hours, like, stoned out of my mind. This is really fun. So after that, um, then I started to really like the Grateful Dead. Um, I was never, I wouldn't have ever called, I wouldn't call myself a deadhead, you know, like I hung out with a lot of people that really love the dead. We would go on like, they would organize trips on spring break to go wherever the dead was playing. So I'd always, you know, do you want to come? Yeah, I'll come, you know, and you'd see like three or four shows and that was really fun. But, you know, I mean, I've always listened to, you know, I'm kind of a musical archaeologist and, you know, I listen to, I mean, now, you know, Nowadays, I like obsessively like download you know, old psychedelic stuff and crap rock and frog rock on the internet and what. But that's how I, that's how I found the Grateful Dead. So yeah, you know, what's, good. Fun, what's funny about that story, Jim, is uh, 1979. I was still a senior in high school, but a lot of the people that uh, that Terry just started naming um, uh, guys were who I hung out with throughout my college career and went to a lot of Grateful Dead shows with. And for like all of these guys, except for Jimmy Marks and Steve Stefano, that was their first dead show. So there's this that whole like, group of guys who saw the Grateful Dead for the first time on campus in Ann Arbor in 1979. And then my luck, I show up in 1980 and the dead didn't play there again until 1989. It was 10 um, years. Right. And they showed up and, and it was funny because they showed up two days after Michigan won the national championship and all the students That's had right. rioted and tore stuff down. And That's right. like, Right. Everyone's like, That's this isn't right. the dead. This isn't the dead. You know, it's That's not. That's right. Dead. So, That's but, right. Uh, 
1979 was also my inaugural year for the Grateful Dead. So I saw one of the last Keith and Donna shows <clears throat> in January of 79 in Springfield, Massachusetts, with my girlfriend at the time, now wife of 40 some years, and Brian, who's still a great friend of mine. And then five months later, they played at the UMass football stadium and it was one of the first Brett Midland shows. So 1979 was my first year as well. And I was a wow. senior. Big year. And there's at least a couple of people that went to that show that ended up like, there was one guy, that was his first show, Jim Richmond. There Jim was Richmond, one guy sure. that ended up becoming like, you know, like spending like 15, this subsequent like 15 or 20 years on the road selling t-shirts, like, you know, Amazing like, dressed like, I had to have put in. I still have a few of his T-shirts because he used to like, you know, give them a Michigan football theme, which I loved. I would yeah, buy. I those. drew one. I drew oh, one. You, oh, that's so funny. Oh, he had you worry. drawn them too. That's great. So yeah, these are great people names I haven't heard for a while. But right, I know, I know. it was such a launch pad for so many people. And that uh, was his first show. I was like, right. Yeah, I thought he was born in like die die, like. You know, right. <laughs> right. That's so funny. That's well. Great um, as much as we could talk about this all day, we probably should <clears throat> talk a little bit about what's happening in the world of legal marijuana in the last week. Larry, what do you got? Um, unfortunately, I got a whole lot of nothing here in Illinois. We're still sitting, um, you know, in typical uh, frustrating fashion, Terry, just to bring you up to speed on this in 30 seconds or less. Illinois went to uh, adult use this year on January 1st. And the only people who are operating adult use dispensaries and cultivation centers right now are the people that previously had medical marijuana licenses to do so. Mm -hmm. And the idea is now to bring more people in to keep up with the demand and give everybody else a chance. And so we had all these people who prepared applications for dispensaries that were all due on January 1st to announce the winners on April 1st. And then we had another whole group for cultivation that was all due on April 30th to be announced on July 1st. And they still haven't announced the dispensary winners from April 1st. So everybody in Illinois is up in arms because people spend ungodly amounts of money and time putting these applications together and the state's not making an announcement and it's creating all sorts of problems if they try <clears throat> to read property and things like that. And each week we sit here and keep hoping that there's going to be positive news. And unfortunately this week, another week has come and gone and there's nothing new to report. So we're still waiting and keeping our fingers crossed. Well, it is a shame because, um, you know, like Hoban Law, Bridge West has cannabis clients all over the country. <clears throat> um, in spite of or maybe because of COVID, um, we're seeing record sales in states from, you know, the East Coast to Hawaii, basically, and everywhere in between. So that's a real shame about Illinois because they're throwing away money hand over fist. Well, they are because they still break sales records month after month, but the sales records that they're creating are still limited because the supply is limited and the number of dispensaries is limited. So that unfortunately, um, you know, has combined to really kind of take the wind out of the sales here. Everybody was a little surprised because this new governor came in and he was so gung ho about everything. And now it's all being held up. And of course, that just starts the rumor mill floating around and everybody's got all sorts of crazy ideas as to what's going on. Bribes being paid or, you know, this is Illinois, so anything is possible. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we'll see because you're, you're right. It's crazy for them not to be able to expand and take advantage of this uh, of this market and what's going on. Uh, Terry, the joke that we always have now is a year ago, nobody would have believed you if you told them that, you know, 
a year out. So today it would be easier to buy marijuana than toilet paper. Um, but if you live in the right state, it's, you know, it's very true here in Illinois, it's an essential item. So, uh, you know, the, that was the good news. The governor made sure that those the dispensaries can stay open and people can still get uh, what they want or what they need. Um, but we just can't get beyond that to get, uh, to get more of them open. So, you know, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, what about you, Jim? What's new? Anything interesting that you're hearing about? Yeah, well, very busy um, getting phone calls from Oklahoma and Arkansas, um, studying the ballot initiatives for November. Uh, you got ballot initiatives in Alabama and Mississippi for medical marijuana. So uh, truly is a national trend. I really think we'll catch up with beer and be a $100 billion industry in a few years is my prediction. A hundred billion legal or a hundred billion total? Well, it's already a hundred billion. <laughs> okay, fine. Fair enough. That's true. So, yeah, I think we'll see the legal markets approaching beer sales. That's you know, beer sales, enough. I believe, are a hundred and ten billion a year. Just get enough states online and it'll happen. There's marijuana smokers out there waiting to be tapped into. Yeah, and I work with a lot of cultivators on their business plans and you know, they're all concerned about, you know, how much should I grow and what can I sell it for? And I said, look, it, if you grow it, you can sell it. You Pretty know, much. The only variation is the, the variable is the price. Right. I've seen wholesale prices of in Colorado go from roughly 1000 to 2000 um, year over year. So a year ago, 2019, 1000 a pound at wholesale, 2000 a pound or even higher for top shelf. Yeah, you know, and we're we're still getting, uh, you know, uh, kind of a shakeout of what the prices are going to be like here. You know, I noticed that some of the medical dispensaries all of a sudden jacked up their price a little bit um, because the dirty secret is in a state that has medical and adult use. The adult use, the state tax on a huge excise tax to make all their money. But if you're a medical patient, you're usually excused from having to pay the excise tax. So as soon as they announce adult use, everybody runs to get their medical cards to avoid it. So now what I'm seeing the dispensaries doing on the medical side is jacking up the price a little bit because they figure we're still going to come in under the adult use. So, you know, maybe and it's, you know, it, it's all of a sudden a gram of extract starts costing, you know, 70, 75 dollars. Mm. And that's just too much. But, you know, the market's going to have to play itself out. And, you know, we'll see. And, and I don't know about you, Terry, how much, you know, you get into that these days. But to me, you know, that's the funnest part about it, because for years, marijuana just meant taking some marijuana, rolling a joint or filling up a bong and taking a hit. And now it means vapes and edibles and tinctures and these extracts, which are like, you know, hashish, but actual resin that they take right off the plant and concentrate to what you like 85% THC on some of this stuff. Yeah. Very that, strong. <clears throat> that the kids dab. I don't know if you're familiar with dabbing or not, I, but I don't know what the kids do. Well. Dabbing is when they, they, they take a, uh, and I'm not saying this, I know anything about because of my kids. I'm just saying the kids <laughs> speaking generally, although their mother might disagree, but you know, you, you take something that basically looks like a bong. You fill it up with a little bit of water, but now you take a blowtorch, a butane torch and you light the bowl. So it gets red hot. Then you take a dab of this extract, which is kind of gooey stuff. And you stick it in there and it instantly vaporizes. And then you pull the hit right through. And uh, at one of these conferences we went to, one of the guys who spoke to us said, it's, it's kind of like the equivalent of freebasing marijuana, what you're doing when you, you know, you're getting the super hit, the really hit, just in case a regular bong hit isn't enough. 
you can do it like this. And it's, you know, they just keep coming up with ways to make it more potent and deliver it more potent. But yep. very strong. Well, we're, a, we're a legal, uh, we're a medical marijuana state. Uh, although yes. I think, I think, uh, I think there's a pretty good chance New Jersey's going to legalize, uh, at the yep, end of the year it's on, on the ballot in November. So uh, I think, I think they're definitely going to legalize it. And when that happens, like the biggest pot store in the world is going to be on the other side of the Ben Franklin bridge. So uh, that's, no that's going to be wide open, but I got my card in last fall and I've been, uh, I really like these tinctures. That's the only thing I've gotten so far at the actual, uh, we, we bought a bunch of, uh, marijuana in, uh, in uh, Colorado and shipped it home. So we've had a bunch sitting around, but I've been getting these tinctures and I, I love them. They're great. You know, you take a couple drops and it's just, it, you know, I, I mean, I have like chronic anxiety. So, you know, a couple drops of that and in the evening and it just, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make me wasted. I'm not like drooling nope. all over my shirt, but it just, just and sort of, it's just very discreet. It makes you realize how much potential there is because you know, I'm like you and until I went to, we went to Colorado a couple of years ago, I'd never been to a dispensary before that. And we walked into that dispensary and I was just, I was amazed by all the, all the cannabis products they had and all that, you know, can calibrate it and you can do all kinds of things that, that it's just, it, it, it's just, a, it's remarkable. And it's, it, it's, I'm really excited to, you know, to, I mean, it's, it's like the best thing about, about now. <laughs> we should wrap this up by talking a little bit about the days between the day yeah. between Jerry Garcia's birth and his passing. Do you listen to the Grateful Dead station at all, Terry? The, the XM station? I don't, but no. uh, I do have re-listen on my phone. Re-listen. Well, you know, this is the the um the XM radio stations, which has now become pretty much my default radio station in the car. But somewhere along the way, you know, he was born on uh, August 1st. He died on August 9th, oh, Garcia. So they created, the they created this holiday, which ties into his song. It kind of gives that song of his a little new life and everything. And so they've kind of turned it into a mini Jerry holiday, you know, and they they, they do a lot of stuff honoring him and everything. And um, yeah, Jim, you had a story you wanted to tell us about that, though, didn't you? Well, I listened to John Mayer talk well, about four changes um dicks picks one miami florida 1973 um comes a time was it or you know here comes sunshine here comes sunshine either one yep those are both three really doing a deep dive into the chord changes and the forth between jerry and bob on that particular song um so I, I am enjoying listening to john mayer's take since he's obviously does a lot of studying of jerry and the grateful dead for his gig with Dead and Company. Um, but yeah, I'm enjoying the days between and listening to a lot of Jerry Garcia's solo stuff. He would have been 78 years old. Hmm. I wonder I, if he would I, have made I'm sorry? It's remarkable how young he was when he died. I mean, he looked right. 10 years older, but I mean. We're yeah, older than him least. now, but right. Yeah. It's crazy. I know, like a lot older. <laughs> and, and Phil is 80 and he's still playing. I know. Yeah, Jerry was 53 when he died. Right. Yep. Yep. Who'd win a boxing match, Phil or Mick Jagger? <laughs> I'd put my money on Mick, but I don't know. Well, he probably works out more. So. I was going to say, right, he's an animal, that guy. He moves around yeah, like nobody's yeah. business. They're going to all just last forever. And, you know, can we all just, again, take note of the fact that Keith Richards is not only still alive, but like a functioning human being, which is just, you know. How is it that 
how is it that the only like fully intact living '60s band is the Rolling Stones? Like, that makes no sense. <laughs> and they partied like nobody's business. It's no, true. I mean, I mean, they were, I don't know. Keith Richards had all his blood replaced. Right, right, <laughs> and that's true. Anyway. Well, gentlemen, um, I think we're coming to the end of our time slot. It's been a great conversation. Uh, it well, really has. Um, Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always great to me. catch up. Absolutely. Uh, nice to see uh, you. As I, uh, do me one favor one more time before we get off. Give the uh, email address, uh, the, the webpage address again. www.breakthroughvisuals.com. Spelled just the way it sounds. Okay. Good. And for everybody who's listening and for all of Terry's friends out there, uh, please encourage them to tune in and listen to our show. I Absolutely. will. I will. Yeah, the yeah. more listeners, the better. We can you know, get back on and tell all those great stories about all these guys. But it's more fun if they're listening while we're telling them. Absolutely. Very good. Okay. Well, I'm going to sign off from Denver, Colorado. Larry, uh, you want to take us home? I will, Jim. Thanks. Uh, appreciate it. And I'll talk to you next week. Again, everybody, thanks for listening today. Our guest was Terry LeBan, uh, world-famous deadhead cartoonist, at least, you know, as far as we're concerned. Um, Terry, thank you <laughs> again for world. being on the show. Great thank to have you. you and be able to touch base with you again. And for all the listeners, stay healthy, stay safe. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.